honesty hour, I did not know what I was doing in regards to launching this podcast. And I wouldn't have been able to do it without Anchor. Anchor makes starting a podcast super, super easy and allows you to not only use their platform to distribute the podcast, but you can even go on your phone or computer and record and edit the podcast right on their platform. Best of all, it's totally, totally free. So if you're interested in starting a podcast, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. So welcome to the Strange on Purpose podcast. Today I have on Q and I had a really cool guest. I, I had a really cool guest on today, but Q is like, we're doing some really cool things, having kind of different hosts, a whole bunch of different hosts involved. Uh, we just want to make it feel more like us and more like like a community. So we're going to be doing group interviews moving forward. This one is totally not a group interview. So I'm, I don't know why I'm sitting here, but I am. I just told Q to come on because I feel like you guys listen and everybody listens a little bit easier when Q talks because he has that like I whisper a little bit. Talking and it's like, <laughs> it gets you like, oh yeah, I need to listen to what? this. I need to listen to this right now. Um, <laughs> so moving forward, we're going to have Q, we're going to have Dids, we're going to have Ken, anybody who wants to jump on with us. I'm stoked for it. Yeah, it's going to be more more consistent, like consistently group interviews. Um, some really, really cool guests coming up here, um, diving into things that we're really passionate about. I've got some video game things. Diz has some video game things. Izzy's been interviewing people in just fashion and shoes and whatever else you talk about, dude. I don't really know, man. You're weird, but excited for the future here. And like, just wanted to say we appreciate all the reviews. We don't really talk about it here, but we look back at all of them. There's just some really, really kind ones, some really cool ones. And some other ones that we're, we've looked at and say, hey, like we should probably change some things because of that. So just thank you all for that and for the kind words and listening to our smooth, sultry voices. Appreciate you guys. But... Today I had on Elizabeth from the Bada Shoe Museum out in Toronto, Canada. Uh, really cool. The shoe museum is kind of its only kind of thing in North America, which is really, really dope. Um, she's, honestly, I learned a ton and I didn't even get to speak with her as long as I, I thought I would or anything like that. So definitely, I have a follow-up conversation because I had a ton more questions for her. Um, we'll see if we get to record that one. Uh, but she just dropped this book. It's called Collab. Um, if you're watching on the YouTube feed, I'm holding it. Um, if you're not, that's sad. You should watch the YouTube feed. Um, but anyways, no, listen on iTunes. On iTunes is good too, I guess. But um, she just re recently dropped this uh, book. She's a published author in this sense and a couple other books as well. And she is the senior curator and um, creative director of the Battery Museum. Uh, they have everything from shoes from the Roman times to the the latest Air Jordans, which is really, really cool, uh, really dope to me. So um, here we go. So welcome to the Strange On Purpose podcast. Uh, my name is Izzy, I'm your host today. And today I have on Elizabeth. Um, and she is an amazing soul. I've done a ton of research on her. Uh, she has amazing opinions one being that she doesn't think crocs are going to leave anytime soon but that we'll, we'll chat on that later um but i do want to get into elizabeth like there's a ton of people listening right now so who are you there's a lot of people asking who are you what do you do <laughs> well i mean <clears throat> that's quite a philosophical question who am i and <laughs> so uh i think i'm i'm still trying to figure that part out <clears throat> but 
uh, I think that a lot of us answer that question by talking about what we do. And so a part of who I am is I am the new, newly appointed creative director of the Battashi Museum. I have been, thank you, thank you so much, uh, but I have been at the museum since 2000 and I remain the senior curator. I think who I really am is somebody who's curious. I Ooh. really am interested in history. You know, people ask me if I love shoes and that's why I do what I do. And while I have come to love shoes or some shoes, um, that isn't what drives me every day. What drives me every day is the question why. And so because footwear is worn everywhere around the world and has by most cultures throughout time, any question I have, I can actually find a pair of shoes to get started on. And I realized early on that um, I'm not very interested in the unique item. I'm not interested in things that are made by one person to only be consumed by one other person. I'm interested in things that are meant to be consumed en masse. If you make something and millions of people buy it, that must mean that what you're making speaks to a much, a much more, a much larger cultural impulse. And so I'm interested in culture. And so I find that working with things like shoes offers a really, really interesting insight into, into the whys of what we do. That's amazing. I, I love that answer already. Um, it's, it's awesome seeing just people that, like you said, like you said before, you, kind of you love history it's not just the shoes and while you've learned to grow to to love shoes um you love history and that 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 question of why is something that i feel like everybody should be curious and always looking to figure out why uh whether it's in their lives whether it's um i won't get into politics but into politics <laughs> and everything like that we're asking why and it's it's definitely an interesting question and it's really cool actually so um I studied sports management in college and uh, have a bachelor's degree in sports management. And if I would have kind of flunked, not flunked, but like if I would have done pretty bad in those first two classes, um, I am a history nut myself. I was going to be a history teacher and that, that that's me. I, my, my parents laugh because uh, my brother would be watching Animal Planet and I would be downstairs watching the History Channel and watching like yeah. Mythbusters for the 10,000th time or watching American Pickers or anything like that. And it's it's really cool seeing the history of why something is or why we're in the position we are today. And even like the history of uh, a person is just amazing to me. Um, so how did you get to where you are today? What, like, was it always that question of why? Like, kind of lead me to you getting to the museum in 2000. So I got here in a very circuitous route. And, you know, I, I think that this is something that also needs to be admitted quite a bit is luck. Luck does play a part. When I, you know, I get a lot of, younger people asking me, you know, how did I get here? What roads should they take? And my advice to anybody is think about what you did when you were a child that nobody made you do. So how that relates to me is that when I was a little kid, I was really, really interested in the people who used to live in my backyard. 
we grew up in Ooh. Seneca, in in Western New York, which was um, originally Seneca, uh, Haudenosaunee land. And so I remember when I was a little kid walking around and thinking, oh, were these trees there? What was this like? Who were these people? And I started researching them. Then I became really interested in pioneer life and I became obsessed with researching everything there was about uh, early American history. Um, but I, and you know, I was lucky. My parents, I, my parents um, encouraged these kinds of things. And a friend of my dad's had made a log cabin playhouse and we lived in the country. Wow. And my dad was like, we'll take it. And so I had this little log cabin playhouse that really, really like just pushed me to do all this research. And, um, but you can only, I grew up outside of Buffalo. You can only play outside in your playhouse uh, certain, <laughs> certain months of the year, the rest is snow. And so my dad, again, I'm very lucky. He would make, um, yearly he would make an ice rink in the backyard and I would put on the ice capades and force my neighbors to hear me sing and dance and skate. And so now where I am, I realize that I am doing both of those things, right? I'm researching every day. I'm constantly asking those questions why, but I also get to put on shows, which are my exhibition. And so I think that if you'd asked me when I was a kid, would this job, I think I wouldn't, even, even all the way through graduate school, I think I would have been like, wait, what? But the reality is, is that I am able to do who I really am. I'm able to do things that really speak to who I really am. And so I got here by, you know, I obviously I grew up, I went to university, I did my doctorate work, um, but I was focused on Japanese art history, which doesn't mm. seem to lead to shoes. Yeah. And, but I was, again, I was looking at mass produced items. So I was looking at Japanese prints which in the 18th century were mass produced and they were images of kabuki actors or um, women who had been prostituted and who had become like these icons of fashionable beauty. Um, and so I was already looking at mass produced items. And so when the opportunity came to move here to the Badashi Museum, one, I saw that no research had actually been done, serious research had been done on the history of footwear. So it was like the wild west of scholarship. Two, I was able to take my principal concerns, which are the intersections of fashion, gender, and economics that I'd been looking at in Japanese prints, and now just apply them to footwear. And so it's actually extremely consistent, even though when, when you look at it at a more micro level, you're like, how did this even ever happen? Wow, that's amazing. That's it, I honestly like it's it's crazy just seeing I, I love hearing how people get to the point that they are and it could be okay yeah I've been on this linear path my entire life or um, I've gone through extreme mountaintops and extreme valleys and kind of got just kind of landed here and you you mentioned something earlier that I really want to hit on and that's the the luck aspect um, we I haven't even explained who I am to you or anything like that, but we have a startup in Milwaukee. Um, it's called Urban Misfit Ventures, and it's grown really, really fast. We've been very, very lucky. Um, and when I say that, my mentors are like, what do you mean lucky? You put in work, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I understand, yes, I've worked hard and everything like that, but if I wasn't in a certain spot at the right time, like I wouldn't have run into the client that ended up 
pushing us forward. And it's, it's, it's truly amazing just how some people are okay with that concept of, of luck and knowing that, okay, some, sometimes you just got to be lucky or, um, some people think that it's, there's not, no such thing of, as luck and it's just like hard work and everything like that. And I, I respect people's opinions, but at the end of the day, I think it's, you gotta be lucky at some points. And that it's, and I appreciate people who also say that part of it is that the opportunity presents itself mm-hmm. and it does take you to jump. Yeah. Right. And so I did jump from Japanese art history two shoes. I even jumped from the United States to Canada, but, but the opportunity did present itself. And, and so that is, I think in part luck. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. So Canada, let's get into that. So, um, I have one of the co-founders uh, in the organization. His name's Eric. He actually just married, um, Karen, who's originally from just, an hour outside of Toronto, I believe. Um, and she just, um, they just got married, everything like that. And she always talks about Canada um, and being like, obviously she moved here and I'm not getting into politics, but in, in a weird era. And yes. she's like, I, I have amazing things to talk about in this, in specifically in that area of the country. And mm-hmm. I think Honestly, from a shoe perspective, I think Canada, I think it's snowing all the time and there's there's only one type of shoe being worn. What what kind of pushed the museum to be open in in Toronto and and what's kind of pushing you forward in in Canada itself? So... Um, the museum was founded by Mrs. Sonia Bata, and it was started out as her private collection. The Bata Company, uh, it, it, even to this day, is one of the largest shoe producers in the world. It's just that they have never had representation in the United States uh, for, for a variety of reasons. But uh, when she, uh, in 1995, um, she opened this museum up. She had it specially built to house the collection. And I think her collection at that point was maybe 7,000 pairs of shoes. We now have over 14,000. And we have, and one of the things that was amazing about her is that she was very ecumenical in her collecting. She was interested in everything. And so the oldest pair of shoes is 4,500 years old. It's from ancient Egypt. And the most recent... Wow. What is the most recent? It might be the Nike redesigned Air Force Ones. Okay. Uh, um, and so we, we run the gamut, right? We have huge holdings. Uh, and one, that makes my job a delight. Like it's, it's so wide ranging. And the reason why it was established in Canada was that the Bata World Headquarters was also here in Toronto. And so Mrs. Bada, um, she moved to Canada from Switzerland. Her husband was Czech and moved from Czechoslovakia to uh, Canada. Uh, they, well, she decided that she would build the museum here. And so while you are absolutely incorrect, we don't just wear boots <laughs> here. Um, <laughs> and in fact, we're probably the, one of the most multicultural cities on the planet. Um, we... I think that actually it makes a lot of sense uh, for us to have this extremely wide ranging collection here. And 
you know, I do think it's interesting to have come to Canada uh, because it is, especially Toronto, is very much um, a, a city that's coming into its own. It's an exciting time to be a part of a city that's just growing and growing and is increasingly an international destination. So we get lots of tourists. We get lots of locals. We are the only shoe museum in North America. So it is a place you got to come. <laughs> yeah, that's that's honestly Toronto is uh, on my hit list for 2020. I, I set goals on travel every year and I try to hit them. And uh, Toronto is definitely in my top three. Um, so top three usually get hit. So I will probably get the, be at the museum at some point next year. Um, so I'm really I'm really excited. And it's it's amazing seeing how like Toronto has really like you said it, it's really grown to this point where. When I was in high school, even in middle school, I never really thought, I, I never really knew that Toronto was that close. Um, I grew up in Chicago, so I was like, oh, yeah. wow, it's, Super it's, close. it's only, yeah. it's not that yeah, far. And exactly. And um, we have actually a, a couple clients that live in Toronto that have businesses here in the States. And it's really cool just seeing how they're talking about um, the city and they're talking about the city in a positive light in, in a, like I'm in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and some, most of the time that doesn't happen here. Um, yeah. And there, there's not a ton of people kind of pushing the city forward and talking about it in a, in a positive manner um, because there are so, so many negative uh, headlines out there. I mean, it, last year, alone, well, this year and last year alone, uh, Milwaukee was named uh, the most segregated city in the United States. And then Ouch. it was also named uh, the num the worst city in the United States for people of color to actually like grow up, and it's become okay. a strange on purpose podcast. We've we've taken a stance. Um, it's primarily minority owned. There's uh, yeah, primarily minority owned. Uh, there's one Caucasian. There's uh, my name is Izzy. I'm your host. Is a African American within this organization, and we have been kind of that outlier we've we've really kind of set ourselves up but then also given back to other communities um and really kind of set ourselves to hopefully be role models to the kids that are growing up right now um and continue to grow up and the reason why i reached out to you was because i had I, we have so many uh, we have high schoolers we have uh, middle schoolers that listen to the podcast like, izzy you're so interested to shoes, why don't you start talking to people in shoes instead of just talking to entrepreneurs <laughs> and all these different people? And I was like, you got a point. Like, I'm going to do it. And I saw that. Um, I reached out to Jock Slade. Um, so he, it looks like he will be coming out in the next couple of weeks. But I saw wow. an interaction between you guys. And I was like, oh, I'm going to reach out to her too. This is awesome. <laughs> yeah, Jacques wrote the intro to my latest book called Collab Sneakers and Culture. And so he was That's very, very kind. He was the perfect person to to write that introduction. Yeah, he's a great guy. He, he yeah. honestly, like I've not, I've never talked to him. I've emailed him and DM'd, um, but he seems like, even through his videos, like he seems like a I genuine. Know, no. And he is. It's it's so nice. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, let's yeah. let's talk about that book. Let's we'll, uh, okay. But that we'll we'll chat on um, what what kind of drove you to to get into um, writing and everything like that? So um, 
years ago now, in 2011, actually, one of the things that uh, Mrs. Bada wasn't super focused on collecting uh, was sneakers, or wore sneakers. And so, you know, I kind of said, well, we have the word shoe on our museum. I think maybe we should do something about sneakers. And also, in particular, I'd been working on the history of the high heel. Uh, and I, my research had established that it had been, you know, a military tool dated it as far back as 10th century Persia. And, you know, this whole sort of story was not expected and it became this really fascinating part of my research. But inevitably when I met people, and this was in the early 2000s, people would say, oh, you work at a museum for, that must be about uh, a museum of shoes. That must be for women. And I was like, roll my eyes and just say, <laughs> I'm so tired of this response because it's not like women wear shoes and men don't in our culture. And also there are a lot of guys out there who are interested in footwear, specifically sneakers. So I started working on um, sneakers, sneaker history, sneaker culture. And I ended up doing an exhibition called Out of the Box, The Rise of Sneaker Culture. And it, um, it then began to travel some, some, like the Brooklyn Museum, which is where it sort of launched its American run called it just the rise of sneaker culture but it traveled across the u.s it traveled to australia and this exhibition looked at the whole history of the sneaker where did it come from why was it first created and and it really wasn't this amazing experience um and so i have not stopped working on sneakers since and co collab sneakers and culture is my it's my second sneaker-focused publication, although I did write a book called Shoes, the Meaning of Style, about the history of three, uh, four different types of footwear, uh, sandals, boots, high heels, and sneakers. And so it's a part of a continuation of my work. Um, I do. And so I was becoming, and one of the things that I always try to do is not just look at a phenomenon, but ask why that phenomenon right now. And so in particular, I was interested in the concept of why are we interested in collaboration? Collaboration as consumers, collaboration has always existed. There have always been designers in sneaker companies working with other people, um, producers, and why all of a sudden do we want to call it out? Why do we want to know that this person and that person came together to make something? And part of me, and this might seem a little Pollyanna-ish, is actually happy or hopeful that maybe we're moving away from our very strong focus on individualism. Yeah. Right? Like when, when you consume things en masse, it means something culturally. So I'm interested in why collaboration, aside from sort of brute economics of, oh, these sell, I also am interested in why do they sell? And why are we interested in these concepts of collaboration? So that was one thing that sort of drove me to do this book. And so I did the history of collaboration um, going back to the late 1920s and really probably the first commercialized uh, collaboration, Pink, Jack Purcell and BF yeah. Goodrich to make the Jack Purcell sneaker, which we all still wear today. But yeah. people don't remember who Jack Purcell was. He was a Canadian badminton player. <laughs> and... <laughs> And, you know, he, he made, has this collaboration in 1933, the height of the depression. And so I was interested in what was it about bringing some star power uh, to the construction of these shoes and, and, and then just trace 
um, the history of collaboration. And so as part of this, I was able to interview a lot of amazing people. Um, you know, I, I did, the book includes detail in history. You know, people ask Jeff Staples, who made the pigeon yeah. among many, many other things, Bobito Garcia. Uh, I actually start the book with Chris Hill, who's a designer in Reebok who works with Pierre Moss. And so I wanted to get the insights of the people from outside who come to um, sneaker companies to collaborate, as well as people on the inside who do collaborations. And I also am very interested in addition to why collaboration now, I'm also interested in why we're interested in having sneakers carry narratives. Ooh, okay. And so we are using our sneakers for storytelling. And I find that a very interesting thing as well, culturally. We're not putting that same obligation on our handbags or our snapbacks. And so what is it about sneakers that can handle narrative or can be a site for a discussion of ideas and narratives? And so, um, you know, those are pretty interesting and meaty topics. And so that's why I did the book. That's awesome. And um, where is it available just in case somebody's listening and wants to purchase? Worldwide. Worldwide. Um, awesome. Yeah, it is worldwide. And, but, you know, it's easy to get either at Rizzoli. It's published by Rizzoli. You can go directly to their website. Amazon's carrying it. Barnes & Noble's. It, it's footwear. It's hopefully lots of public libraries, too. Awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, I love you get into the storytelling aspect of, of sneakers and the push towards it right now. And um, I know there's there's an agency out of Denver who uh, collaborates with Nike by you and they do a uh, cultivator series every every year um, giving, yes. I believe this this time was about 37 designers. Um, yeah. But I, I go through and I think I've purchased a couple- Cultures throughout time. Like, What's crazy to me is that every year I log in to see who's designing this year or doing this this year, but I'm going for the store. Like every year I'm going back for the story aspect. I'm not going back because another Nike. Yeah, exactly. And I, we're not going back just for another Air Max. We're not going back for a React Presto. We're going back for the story behind it and like, oh, wow, I might have five pairs of React Prestos, but this one stands for this. Just get started on. And, I, and yeah. that's why I like it. And yeah. um, it's, it's, it's really crazy, just the power of story. And it, it's something that we've based our content agency on and just showing people that like, if you can develop a, a powerful enough story, really get the insides of someone, like, it, like over time they're gonna buy, but like if you have that story down, yes, they'll, they'll buy now. And yeah. Um, Nike's done an amazing job of it. I know Adidas has a similar program, um, but someone that that has recently um, been pushing story a ton is Puma, um, and I've been I've been uh, almost super fanning in a, in a sense uh, with Puma for a little bit now, and uh, unfortunately, I think it, it was this. This upcoming year will be seven years, uh, seven years ago that my uncle passed away and he worked at Motorola. Uh, it was a pretty abruptly, but uh, Puma came out with a collaboration with Motorola and I'm sitting there and I was like, wow, this is a, a, a really, obviously a really cool sneaker. I got to get it. But um, 
I decided to reach out to Matthew Growney, who actually developed the entire um, partnership with Motorola, everything like that. I was like, what, what's the story behind this? Because they didn't actually put the story out there. Um, and when he told me, it was just, it was that power, like it was, honestly, I already had bought the shoes. Like I was like, I want to buy another pair. <laughs> um, <Yeah>. But like, <laughs> they're like, I'm not going to say it's because of me, but just from that moment on, they've been like pushing story on everyone and collaborating with designers, not just the, the massive, not that they've, they've collaborated with Virgil, but not just the names like Virgil's they're, they're collaborating with the people that are on the street right now, really just trying to get their way, uh, make their way out there. And it's been, it's been amazing to see the power of story and story be pushed a lot more and less of, okay, this has to be a, um, essentially a, a, a retail store where you're looking at a wall and you're like, okay, I like these. And, it, right. and it, it, there's a purchase. There's, there's some, there's some heartstrings definitely on there. Um, and they get people. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I actually end the book with a Puma collab, um, between Puma and Le Benjamins in uh, Istanbul. And so okay. Bunyamin who, who runs, uh, Le Benjamins, um, I decided to end the book with him because I know that there's concern that maybe collabs have been overplayed. And so I find that working with one could this possibly go on? And he pointed out, or in our conversation, he said something to me that I thought was really interesting, which was, you know, here was this guy, Bunyamin, in Turkey, and he was looking at the incredible heritage that he has. And he was bringing some of that into this collaboration with Puma. And he said, there's so many stories left to be told. And so if we think beyond the geographic confines of the US or North America and realize that through the power of narrative, how many stories are there out there that could make for amazing collaborations? And if we think about it that way, the whole wide world, right, is, is brimming with more things that we can learn. And so it doesn't mean that every story has got to be made into a commodifiable. But I think it is interesting that we are interested in having consumables that, that do more than just simply cover our feet. I love that. And it, it's, it goes, it kind of pushes us along that, like you said, like you said, there's as an art form. Um, and really like there's a story behind it, but then when you have this art form, I mean, you, obviously you have the collectors that like to, um, buy 10,000 pairs of sneakers and just put them on shelves, which is amazing. Uh, you have people that are very pro wear your sneakers, crease them up, those type of people. What do you think of sneakers as, as like as an art form and collecting these days? And like the, obviously with the resale industry being so big and, to grow to, to this point like what do you think the future of sneakers and, and shoes as a whole is my answer is going to actually be quite complicated okay um i do think that right now we are experiencing a moment you know if you if you think about cause or you think about chantal martin or daniel arsham people artists who are breaking down the barriers between quote unquote high art and low art and just easily move between um, all manner of things that we make and adding their artistic stamp to it. I think that's an interesting breakdown because I think the whole question of what is art 
it's almost like a who is God question. Um, because art comes with a kind of is looking to figure out why certain things should be culturally valued instead of asking maybe everything we make can be assessed uh, or can be thought of in terms of or can be appreciated for their for its artistic value as much as its utility. You know, you can you can eat out of a beautiful bowl every morning. And um, I won't get into politics. Maybe art, that bowl. So I think those questions um, are worth sort of teasing apart a little more. And I think sneakers are doing a really interesting job with it. I also think it's into politics <laughs> and everything like that. Artists like Daniel Arsham, or if you think of Tom Sachs, are turning to sneakers as a means to um, do their artistic practice. But, or let me back up. So having said that, I think that we can absolutely, and I do personally, uh, appreciate the aesthetics of many of the sneakers that are made. But the question of valuing them, it, I think, is a little more complicated, especially valuing them as investments. And this is the part that maybe is more difficult to swallow. So one of the things I'm interested in is how sneakers have been a means for men to engage more fully with the fashion system. So for years and years and years, men have been told that they shouldn't care about how they dress or they should only wear certain types of things like the business suit. I'm sure you're aware of the reporter who um, noticed that his co-anchor was wearing, was getting criticized for what she wore different every day. And so he decided without telling anybody that to wear the exact same suit every single day for one year and not a single viewer noticed. And so men have had this both um, restraint, like don't wear anything, don't express your individuality to what you wear. But in some ways, they've also had the luxury of buying one suit instead of 10,000 different things to wear. <laughs> um, and so sneakers have been a way for one, for men to one, express more aspects of their individuality. But what keeps it but keeps them from being quote unquote frivolous fashion, which is sort of how women are denigrated for what they buy. Men are told that often the sneakers that they're interested in are investments. And so I think that it bolsters the, so using sneakers as investments, and they are in fact now have become investments, but I think that whole logic of investment allows sneakers to fit into more traditional ways that men collect. I collect fine wine, I collect sports cars or watches. And, you know, I say this a lot, but even when Air Jordans start to be numbered, right, that fits into the concept mm -hmm. of rational collecting. And that, that, that's me. I Women's collecting isn't termed in these ways. Like women don't wait in line for, you know, the Christian Louboutin 1 to be followed by the Christian Louboutin 2. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Their collecting is sort of always oh, women are just crazy. They just love shoes. They just buy what they emotionally want. And I think the fact is, is that men do too. Yeah. Um, and, and we should just admit it and, and quit with this, this division. But I do think this, the, these discussions of sneakers as investment help to maintain the illusion that men's consum consum consumption patterns are different than women's. So how's that for your complicated answer? That's a complicated answer, but it all makes sense. <laughs> it really does. And it, it's crazy. Like, like I said, like it, the, the future is just kind of, it's, it's complicated. 
uh, like you said, it, it, it's very, very complicated. And um, I sit back and my, I have a brother, American Pickers or anything like that, really into finance. And I have cousins that are really into shoes. And um, my brother compares the stock market to uh, some certain shoes. And he's like, sometimes, I mean, it maybe the better investment is that the next pair of off-whites that come out or the next pair of Gucci sneakers to come out. Do you know where the word investment comes from? No, let's hear it. Vestment, clothing. Because before fast fashion, oh. history of why some months and, and even earlier, people were often paid in clothing. The most expensive thing you owned were the textile clothing. And so it's sort of interesting that sneakers, you know, investment handbags, you know, we're starting to talk about that uh, yeah. as well. Um, actually kind of links back to how clothing has historically been valued as investments, actual investments. Wow, that's nuts. Oh my gosh. It, <laughs> honestly, when you were telling me, I was like, wow, that makes sense. Wow. Uh, that's, that's, that's crazy. Um, so don't let anybody ever tell you that fashion is frivolous. Don't, uh, fashion is a central economic engine. Yeah. I'm going to make sure my girlfriend uh, listens to this one because she she needs to after that, <laughs> that definition. <laughs> but it's it's funny. Um, I am recently, I, I just recently started to do the Complex um, Fashion Institute of Technology Sneaker Essentials program online. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I was, when uh, you agreed, I started my first week of it and I'm reading one of the, the readings that they sent to me and you were quoted like 10,000 times in it. And I believe it was a Wall Street Journal article. And I was like, wait, she's going to be on the podcast. I'm doing, I'm doing my research before actually doing my research. Um, but it, it's really cool seeing that people are just trying to get into the industry now. And obviously, um, if that industry is, I mean, the, the, like we kind of said already the industry the future of this industry is very complicated but i think um what's really cool is that the next generation is kind of not so they they know what they want to do next um and i just um want to get into education and okay. obviously you you've done a ton of uh studying in in your day and you doctorate correct no i never no. finished it Okay, no worse. Um, but you, you've done, you've gone to school, and yes, I have yes. as well. And there's, there's a ton of, ton of different people out there, and there's a ton of pushback from school these days. You know, I, I think that this is and all these things. It's, it's crazy. And what, what's your outlook on, on the future of the education space? And what, like, I know, I'm, I'm definitely at the point where. I'm not working in the sports industry anymore, but if it wasn't for me getting that degree, I wouldn't be where I am. Um, and I, I, there's a ton of people out there and I, whether they want to admit it or not, I think they're in the same position, but so what's your, what's kind of your outlook on that? Luck does play. It's going to be complicated. <laughs> you know, when I went to university, I did a, a, a liberal arts education and I got to try a lot of different things and I studied Japanese literature I studied printmaking I studied the enlightenment I studied so many things that 
one, having that kind of basic education gave me a good grounding for what I was going to do next, right? And so I think that a lot of people, because it has become so expensive, go in and say, I need to get an education that will help me find a job. Instead of, I'm going to get an education to be educated. And, Ooh, and like right? And I completely get it, which is why I think what's most important is that higher education become free. Yeah. Like we understand that we need our elementary education, we need our secondary education, but post-secondary education, we still make it um, something that only the privileged can, ha can have access to or you have access to it, but you are burdened by debt, which enforces the fact that you then have to get a job to pay it off. And so I'm not saying you shouldn't get a job, but I'm saying maybe if people could go in, experience what should be a mind expanding for years, and then choose something that really they can excel at, we would have a much wider range of um, hopefully jobs available, people to do those jobs, people to innovate new jobs. So I feel bad, really bad for the current generation and, and recent generations who haven't had the chance to just have that moment to learn. And so that's one of the huge differences between Canada and the U.S. is yeah. the Canadian education is so much less expensive. And so countries can do it. They can do yeah. universal health care. They can do education at a more reasonable cost. I mean, it's not free, but wouldn't that be amazing? I think that these are things that our government should be making because out of ourselves, if we don't have to worry about the burden of debt or the work with both education and health care. So there's the political side of me. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I'm 100% on your side. And I think a lot of people out there are too. Um, yeah. Myself, I'm, I'm still, I graduated in 2016. Um, and I, I to be completely honest, I, I pay the minimum on my student loans and uh, they made the yeah. mistake of telling me how much I owe. They're like, oh, well, with this payment you are at. I'm like, why did you do that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you just kind of dampened my mood the rest of the day. But at the end of the day, um, if I think if they if the future is creative and we want to push people to get these creative jobs and we want to push these people to get into the, the next generation to get into tech and all these different things. Um, that's great, but they have to, I was pushed. But how in, can you, I mean, the best way to be the most creative you can be is to learn as much as you can learn. Exactly. Exactly. Right? I was pushed so, not to like do study these different things, whether it be fashion, whether it be, were these trees there? What would quote unquote no money in it? Correct. Yes. And so, I think that needs to be changed as well. Right. And I think, but I think the burden of changing that shouldn't be on the individual. No. It should be on us collectively as a society. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But I think obviously I, I don't want to take up much more of your time. Um, I think the I, the two big questions that need to be asked uh, to end this is them. Then I we're, we call in, in Milwaukee, we're known as the misfits. We walk around the city when we can, because it, it's kind of like Toronto right. or Buffalo or anything <laughs> like that. Uh, there's already oh. snow on the ground here. Um, yeah, same here. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but we walk around the city. They know us as the misfits. Um, what makes you a misfit? 
I think I'm a misfit probably because of what I study. And, you know, it's, there's very few success with researching everything there issue history. And I also think that maybe what also makes me a misfit is that I cannot drop the question. Why? (laughs) (laughs) A lot of people focus on the who and the what and the when and the where, and I'm like, but none of it, I mean, it matters, but the why is the most important thing. And so um, maybe that's my misfit answer. I love that. I love that. What, what, in regards to like you, what's next for you? But I, I'm doing, uh, next year's our 25th anniversary. And so it's going to be a big year for the museum. Very excited about that. I'm good doing year to two. Visit. What? It's a good year to, for me to visit. It's a good year to visit. <laughs> um, and we're putting on two new exhibitions. One is I, my parents' 18th century footwear and the Enlightenment. And the point of that exhibition is to look at Enlightenment philosophy, which established a lot of discussions about things that we're questioning today, about gender, empire, privilege, um, and asking the questions, one, how did this display itself at the footwear level, which totally did, and two, why are we still holding on to some of these concepts? Uh, so I'm asking people to to not only think had made a log 18th century, but question how it's become normalized. And then the other exhibition is called Exhibit A. I'm curating it, co-curating it with a dear friend of mine named um, uh, Dr. Allison Matthews David, and it's on crime and fashion and footwear. Ooh. That so one's... sneakers. All right. Toronto just moved back up. So sneakers, the term, uh, comes from implied criminal or the ideas of criminality in the it is at least in use in the U.S. as early as the 1870s. So it's got a long history, and wow. a very and sneakers have a very complicated history of. I said that word complicated so many times. Um, <laughs> so anyway, it'll be really interesting. I think so. That's what I'm working on. And I'm doing a book on women and seekers. Oh, nice. Is that hopefully next year or are you looking at com- next couple of years? Um, I'm hoping that it comes out in May 2021. Ooh, and then I've got okay. a big sneaker exhibition coming out in uh, November of 2021 as well. That's and awesome. Then- yeah, so... <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate you jumping on with me today. I, like I said before, I'll keep you on for a couple of minutes after. But um, if people want to find you, where where can people find you? Find me specifically on yeah. Twitter, Instagram, um, and you know here at the museum. And so the museum website is fatishmuseum.ca because we're in Canada, and yeah, Playhouse uh, certain. We'll have uh, your social media right down below if they're watching the YouTube broadcast. If not, go to the YouTube broadcast and you'll be able to find everything there. Um, but again, I appreciate you jumping on today. Um, I Thank you for jumping on Strange on Purpose with me. Thanks for inviting me. It was really fun. Thank you.